The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 41, 7 through 13. All who hate me whisper together about me. They plan to harm me. Something awful has overwhelmed him, and he won't rise again from where he lies. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his hill against me. But you, Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Then I will repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy does not shout in triumph over me. You supported me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Kay. So our church staff has a weekly meeting, and this probably won't come as a surprise to you that Adam creates the agenda for the meeting. So not only does he create the agenda, but it's his, his job to try to get us to stick to the agenda, which isn't as easy as it should be. Sometimes I bring up, well, maybe not sometimes, often <clears throat> I bring up things not on the agenda. Sometimes Don wanders away. Like there are lots of things that distract us from getting through the agenda when we meet, but Adam patiently keeps pulling us back to the agenda until we accomplish everything we set out to do. I think that's how we as Christians view our response to God's agenda. That God has an agenda for my life, and I, as a Christian, I pretty much go along with His agenda. Sometimes I get distracted, but then He patiently pulls me back. Generally speaking, though, I'm content with the agenda He has prepared for me. If that's how I feel, then I'm lying to myself. Let me suggest a more accurate picture of how I respond to God's agenda for my life. So imagine this week at staff meeting, I show up, I see Adam's agenda, and I decide to create my own. And they may overlap in spots, but they look significantly different. Every time Adam brings up a topic, I ignore him, and I I start going down the topics on my agenda. This happens over and over. Adam starts to talk. I keep drowning him out with what I want to do. See, my agenda for my life, it focuses on things going well. It focuses on things running smoothly. As I look at my agenda that I've created for my life, you know what I don't find on it? It's trouble, difficulty, challenges, obstacles. God's agenda for my life, however, looks far different. Paul Tripp describes God's agenda as the theology of uncomfortable grace. He writes that, The trials that grieve us are the trials of grace, that God is patiently and perseveringly doing exactly what He promised. He is delivering us from sin and forming us into the image of His Son. In other words, what I want, what we want, are lives free of trouble and difficulty. We want everything to be comfortable. But suffering And difficulty are what God uses to change us, to deliver us from sin, to make us more like Jesus. Because we are sinners, we need to change. And we rarely change apart from suffering and difficulty. 
The blunt truth is that God is determined to change us, to refine us, and one of the main tools of his refinement is the furnace of suffering. Now, I'm guessing that you, like me, struggle with God's agenda, right? Here's my agenda, trouble-free. Here's God's agenda. It seems to be filled with trouble and difficulty. So, so Tripp asked a few questions to, to, to show us this conflict we have between our agenda and God's. He says, how do you assess a good day? Do you tend to celebrate the smooth-running, unobstructed days and curse the days when difficulty has been in your path? How small a trial is able to make you angry? How quick are you to question God and His goodness? How much do you envy the apparent ease of others? How much is your joy and contentment tied directly to comfort and ease? Now listen, I know, brothers and sisters, that suffering is probably not the topic you wanted to talk about this morning. In fact, maybe you saw the sermon title and you're like, great, this is what I was hoping to do on a rainy day. See, but I believe a a right view of suffering, learning to see how God uses it for our good is a life-changing discovery I'm convinced that so many of us, we walk around with this sort of constant irritability, this sort of pervasive, slow-burning anger because our lives are not going how we expect them to. And the root cause of this disappointment, the root cause of this angst is a failure to understand how the very bad circumstances of our life can produce very good results. Psalm 41 helps us understand why we need suffering. Now listen, we won't always need suffering. So that's good news, right? We won't always need suffering. We won't need it forever. There'll be a day where it's banished from God's creation forever. But right now, it's a vital part of God's plan for you and it's for your good. So let me show you two reasons that we need suffering. Here's the first one. Suffering reveals our need for grace and mercy. Suffering reveals our need for grace and mercy. This psalm has an interesting structure. Instead of starting at the beginning, we actually need to start in the middle and then work our way out both directions. The middle of the psalm describes a time of suffering in David's life. He he seems to be struggling with his physical health, but also with people slandering him. So look at verse verse 5. He says, my enemies speak maliciously about me. Here's what they say. When will he die and be forgotten? When one of them comes to visit, he speaks deceitfully. He stores up evil in his heart. He goes out and talks. All who hate me whisper together about me. They plan to harm me. Here's what they say. Something awful has overwhelmed him, and he won't rise again from where he lies. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. So his suffering seems to be coming from multiple directions. There are health problems, verse 5 says, that are causing him to be, verse 8, be confined in bed. And it seems that whatever he's struggling with physically could actually lead, verse 5, to his death. You can almost hear the desperation in his voice as he describes what's going on. Imagine the pain of knowing that there are people who want you dead. As far as I know, I'm happily oblivious to the fact that there's anyone who wants me dead. 
As far as I know, there's no one who would cheer if I were to die today. Imagine that there are people who not only want you dead, they actually visit you, they say nice things when they're around you, then they leave and they spread vicious rumors cheering for your death, verse 6. Imagine one of those was a really, really close friend who ate with you regularly, and he's betrayed you. She's betrayed you. Verse 9. See, within their slander are seeds of doubt about God's goodness to David. Did you notice how they said, he will be forgotten when he dies? David's been made a promise by God that he will have a son who sits upon his throne forever and ever. And so, which one's going to happen? Is it what God said or is it what his accusers want? Will God's promises to him fail? Is he really going to die and be forgotten? A person's response to suffering is like when you walk into a building and there's an escalator in front of you and you've, you've got to make a decision to either get on the one going up or get on the one going down. You can try to get on both simultaneously, but it's not going to be good for you. Right? It's not going to, you're not going to stay on both for long. So in moments of suffering, we we have to choose how to respond because suffering can make us bitter or suffering can reveal our need for help. One escalator descends to bitterness and frustration. We get on that one complaining about how unfair life is, agitated by the failure of our agenda. This isn't supposed to happen. The other escalator ascends to grace and mercy. We get on that one recognizing our need for help and that God has promised to help us. In David's case, he steps on the escalator leading to grace and mercy. His suffering reveals to himself how desperate he is for God's help. These these verses describing his suffering are bracketed on either side by David crying out to God for grace. Look at verse 4. I said, Lord... Be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Verse 10, but you, Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, then I will repay them. David is not responding to his suffering with bitterness. He doesn't say, Lord, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? What, What did I do to bring this on? Why are you treating me like this? See, if you think you deserve better, then you will struggle with bitterness when life is not going how you planned, when things aren't going your way. But David recognizes that he's a sinner, and whether or not this suffering is a direct result of his sin, he knows this, I don't deserve better. Like, we are sinners that are living in a world cursed by sin, and our sin has disqualified us from the expectation that everything should be easy and smooth. Easy and smooth was lost in the garden. And so David's suffering has revealed his need for God's grace and mercy. Grace, verse 10, to handle his circumstances. And grace, verse 4, to cover his sin. But receiving grace and mercy is not the end of the story. Grace and mercy produce good things in the life of the person who receives them. This is why God allows suffering in our life. This is why it's part of his agenda for us. Suffering reveals how desperate we are for grace and mercy. And then grace and mercy does a good work in us, and it produces in us things that we could not produce in ourselves through good intentions alone. 
So what do grace and mercy produce in the life of the Christian? This is how the psalm begins and ends. Grace and mercy produce graciousness. In the famous musical Les Mis, the main character, Jean Valjean, he spends the last decades of his life helping others. He particularly adopts a a young girl whose mother has died. And this is in contrast to the early years of his life that were spent in prison. And, And the moment that everything changed was a time when Valjean stole some silver from a priest. He was arrested and he was brought before the priest and he was looking at the rest of his life in prison and the priest shows him mercy. He says, I I gave him these things and he forgot some of the other things I gave him and he puts gold into the bag and sends him his way. And Valjean knows that at that moment, the course of his life has been forever changed. That he is on a new course, a new road marked by compassion for others. This is what we see throughout Scripture And it's evident in the first verse of Psalm 41. It says this, Happy is the one who is considerate of the poor. The Lord will save him in a day of adversity. Remember, this psalm works out from the middle. Suffering causes us to cry out for grace, and grace changes how we view and treat others. We show grace because we've received grace, and then we receive even more grace when we need it. Think of grace like a revolving door. Right? We receive grace, and then we give grace. We receive more grace, and so we give more grace. We are sprinklers, not swimming pools. Grace flows through us. It doesn't end with us. You see, the person who receives grace, listen, is the person who understands their own need. It's the person who recognizes they are poor. What's it mean to be poor. Here, here's what it means simply, that there is something I need and I don't have the power or the strength or the resources to meet that need. And so, in that moment, what will I do? Well, I'll cry out for help. And so when that happens and we receive help in our poverty, we receive help, the strength necessary to do the thing we need to do, then what happens is we, we start to look for other people in need. And we say, how can I help them? This is David's experience. Look at how Psalm 40 ended. Psalm 40, the final verse, verse 17. Here's what David writes. I am oppressed and needy. I am poor. I don't have the resources necessary to do what I need to do. So he says, may the Lord think of me. You are my helper and my deliverer. My God, do not delay. So in David's need, he cries out to God and God helps him. And this causes him to think about those who need help around him. And he really thinks about it. Verse 1 says he considers it. This psalm is connected to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 talks about the blessed man who meditates on the Word of God. So after meditating on the Word, he meditates here on the poor and needy. This is what we need to do as Christians. We need to think deeply about the Word and then think deeply about our world. What does God want us to do? We find that in the Word. And what's He want us to do in this place where He has planted us? The world. So in a video Adam sent out earlier this week, he challenged us to consider three things. The commands of Jesus, the gifts or abilities of Redeemer, and thirdly, the needs of Fuquay. We should ask this question, who 
are the poor around us? Who are the people in need? Happy is the man who considers the poor, who sees their need, and then he acts in grace to meet that need. We need to answer this question if we're to act. Now, I can think of many ways that Redeemer members have considered the poor in our community. Many recently stepped up to help a family of Afghan refugees who were trying to get settled here, and they needed like almost, if not week, almost daily, if not weekly, people to drive them places, just drive them to the store, drive them to appointments. Others have served pregnant women who in their desperation were considering abortion. They've offered housing, opened up their homes for months at a time, transportation, food, medical supplies. Others have served the elderly in nursing homes, singing, playing instruments, letting them know their lives matter, affirming their dignity. Others have handed out food and worked with various crisis ministries. Just this week, Adam and I met with one of the counselors here at Fuquay Middle. And he said over the last couple years, a number of the students have fallen behind. These are students often from families that don't have the resources to provide tutoring. And he said, would you as a church provide tutoring for some of these students so they can enter high school no longer behind, but ready and prepared for that? See, brothers and sisters, Jesus reached down to us in our poverty. He became poor so that we might become rich. He gave everything so we could gain everything. How are we showing grace and mercy to those in need around us? How can we do this better? How can we be more consistent? Are you considering the poor? So grace and mercy produce graciousness, but it also, these also produce stability. Here's one of the blessings of suffering, okay? Suffering destroys the illusion each of us have created for ourselves that we are self-sufficient. So we're like Lego builders. We, we sort of build our lives as if we're sufficient. I got this. I'm competent. I can handle things. Like I can, I can manage my life well. And all of a sudden suffering comes in and it's like little brother seeing older brother's Lego creation and saying, it took you that many hours to put it together. Watch how quick I can take it apart. Right? This is what suffering does. And this illusion that we've created that we are sufficient, it's gone. It's gone in an instant. And it shows us in suffering how weak and powerless we are. But, but here's the beauty that in our weakness, we cry out to God and he rushes in with his grace and mercy. And we learn this. We don't have to have it together because God does, and he's got us. It's okay for us not to be competent because God will take care of us. Look at verse 2. The Lord will keep him and preserve him. He will be blessed in the land. You will not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed. You will heal him on the bed where he lies. Notice how our stability is revealed in times when we can't produce it on our own. He says here, in my sickness, when our enemies surround us. These are the times when, when we really learn whether or not our lives are built on something stable. Hopefully you've learned the lesson that you never get your air conditioning fixed during the winter. Why is that? Because you don't know if it's fixed. Like, that guy can tell you it's fixed. He can 
turn on your car and say, look, it's blowing cold air. Well, it's cold outside. So you, you get your air conditioning fixed during the summer because you won't know whether it's fixed until it gets really hot outside. See, you, you don't really know how stable your life is until something comes along with the power to make it crash. And here's what we learn in those moments. God will sustain us. He will. He will support us. That he can, we can trust him. This doesn't mean every Christian is healthy all the time. Every Christian recovers from every sickness. It means that God upholds us no matter what. There's a, a farsightedness to this verse. These verses look beyond our present circumstances to our future confidence. Every Christian is a landowner. We may not see it now, but each of us will find God's blessing in the land that he has prepared for us. Let me ask you, where do you look for stability? Suffering. Suffering, if we're paying attention, shows us. Are you, are you looking to your job? Are you looking to your spouse? Are you looking to your bank account? Are you looking to your sort of own ability to get yourself out of trouble? Suffering is a bullhorn telling us not to trust what our eyes can see. Suffering is like a detour sign. I don't know about you. I don't like detour signs. Because I had nine minutes to get that meeting, so I left nine minutes before that meeting. And I'll arrive on time. That's my agenda. Meeting in nine minutes, takes nine minutes, leave, get there on time. No trouble. And all of a sudden, a detour sign comes up, which is a sign of trouble, and I don't like it. I don't like it at all. This is going to mess with my carefully constructed plans. Right? And yet we understand God is the one who, who puts those detour signs in place because he's going to get us to where we need to go at the right time in the right way and as safely as he wants to get us there. And so suffering is telling us to stop trusting in our own plans but trust our future to God. Grace and mercy produced next confidence. And so sometimes I think we, we say things like our security, our stability is in God. And we believe that, but we believe it like God is a security guard and we're a customer. It's God's duty to keep us safe. There's a relationship, I don't know, I don't allow a great relationship with any security guards, but they're there to keep me safe. But I want you to see how the relationship between God and his people is far deeper than the relationship between a security guard and a customer. That it's actually rooted in love and delight. That God responds to his people in need with security, with stability, with grace, with mercy, because he delights in us. Because he delights in us. That's why he gives us grace. Look at verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up then I will repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy does not shout in triumph over me. You supported me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. God's grace to you is a sign of his delight in you. I mean, think about this. God loves you, Christian, and he wants you to live with him. Like this is what the Bible's about. God made a people for what purpose? To enjoy him forever, to live with him in delight. Why did Jesus come to redeem those rebellious people? 
because he wants to live with them forever in joy and delight. This is what it's about. Do you think God is gracious to you because he has to be? I think maybe this is how we picture God. He's got his grade book. I don't know why you look. There we are, and he's watching us, and he's like, I mean, look at these marks. They're really doing a poor job. But I promised I would take care of them. My contract says I have to love them. I mean, but look at this. They don't deserve it. I mean, this is, is this how you picture God? That God loves you because he must. He made a promise. He's faithful to his promises. So even though you don't deserve it and you're miserable, I guess I'll love them. That's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches about us, about a God who is so infinitely delighted that he made a people to share his delight with. And that his delight comes to us not based upon anything we do. We don't earn it. And Therefore, nothing we do can cause it to be lost. In fact, David here talks about God's loving him and responding to his integrity. David's not saying that he earned God's grace. He's already said, I'm a sinner. What what he's saying is, by his integrity, what he means is that he has confessed his sin. That God's grace has brought him to this point where he has confessed his sin. He's received grace. And this is a sign of God's delight in him that God has brought him to this point of confession and receiving his grace. So the basis of his confidence is that he's like, God is working in me and God will raise me up to live with him forever. In these verses, we see a connection between grace, resurrection from the dead, and confident Christian living. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15, a passage of Scripture that begins by explaining to us the grace that comes through Jesus Christ, that Jesus died in our place to redeem us from the curse of the law. And then it says, and because he rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead as well. And it ends like this, therefore, based upon his grace, which guarantees your resurrection from the dead, be steadfast, don't be shaken, abound in serving the Lord because you know this, nothing you do for him will be in vain. Like there's a type of confident Christian living that comes from a a certainty that God's grace has been poured out on us and we will live with him forever. So brothers and sisters, your confidence shouldn't come from a day where everything goes smoothly. Because we, we know how quick that changes, don't we? Like we walk in confident and we leave shattered. Your confidence should not come from a, a trouble-free day or, or even an emotionally powerful experience. Those come and go. But your confidence should come because you're, you're learning and you're growing more and more convinced that God delights in you And he has promised that you will live with him forever and nothing can stop it. Nothing can hinder it. Nothing can shake it. Nothing can alter or edit the commitment he's made to you. Grace and mercy finally produce worship. Produce worship. I didn't take chemistry in high school. Somehow I still graduated. I did. But I know know some things to be true. I know that there are certain chemicals which react when combined. 
And they do it every time. And so it's not a question of whether or not they will react. They must because it's built into the very nature of these chemicals. I think as what we see that when a person truly experiences the grace of God, it produces a certain reaction every time. It, this reaction bubbles up inside and it comes out in expressions of praise. Look at how this all ends. Verse 13, blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. I don't want you to miss this connection. Worship and suffering can happen simultaneously. I think sometimes we think of worship, particularly gathered worship, corporate worship, as something that should, that should like simply be sort of happy and bubbly and like everything is going great. Let's gather because everything is going great. Well, but it's often not. So, like, I would suggest that the most powerful worship actually comes out of our suffering, that, that it's actually when we bring our suffering to God in worship. I mean, do you realize that all around you this morning are people that are suffering, and in their suffering they came here today because they said, here's what I need more than anything. I need to sing to God, and I need to listen to God, I need to pray to God, and I need, I need God to work in me. See, when you're suffering, what you're tempted to do is avoid these times. Maybe when things are better, I'll do it. No, no, this is when you need it most. You bring your tears, you bring your heartbreak to God, and you offer it to him because he's worth it. And so suffering reveals our need for grace and mercy, and then grace and mercy produces these things in, a, in, in us. But let me show you one more thing suffering does. Here's a second reason. Suffering reveals our need for Jesus. Reveals our need for Jesus. This psalm points us to Jesus as the one we need in times of suffering, the one through whom grace and mercy comes. In fact, the description of suffering in verses 5 through 9 describe what Jesus experienced as he was slandered by political leaders and then betrayed by one of his disciples. Verse 9 is quoted in the Gospel of John about the actions of Judas Iscariot. Jesus says in John 13, verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I've chosen, but the Scripture must be fulfilled the one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. Not only did Jesus suffer betrayal and slander, but in his suffering, he cried out to God for mercy. And God, because he delights in Jesus, heard his cry and he raised him up in victory over his enemies. Jesus is dwelling in his Father's presence right now where he is considering the poor. He's considering us and he's helping us in our need. We've alluded to this verse many times already today. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus suffered so that he could give grace to the suffering. Jesus became poor to give mercy to the poor. Friend, this good news is what we call the gospel. The gospel is the heartbeat of our world. The gospel is the, is the story of the Bible. It's the testimony of every Christian that we have a debt to God we cannot pay. That nothing, we can't bring anything to God to offer him so that our debt will be erased. That's so often what so much of religious activity is built on, right? Is if I bring this thing to God, maybe he'll erase the guilt and the shame that I feel. But we have nothing. And yet God intervened. The one to whom we owed the debt assumed the debt and he pardoned us because Jesus came. He released us from our obligations. 
Let me ask you, are you still trying to pay back the debt you owe? Did you come this morning thinking like, well, I'm here, God will see it, he'll be happy. I can pay off a little of that debt, the things I messed up this week, that doesn't work. Right, but there's a way to be completely forgiven. That's what this is calling us to. This book of Psalms was written to show us, I think this is why we find it so meaningful when we study it each summer. This book of Psalms was written to show us how to run to Jesus when life is not going how we expect it to go. So you may have noticed, if you look in your text there, that this is the final psalm in what's called book one. So the book of Psalms is divided into five books. This is the final psalm. Psalm 1 through Psalm 41 are called book one. Book one, chapter, the first psalm, began the same way as this psalm does. They both begin with the phrase, blessed is the, man, the one who... And in Psalm 1 and 2, we're told this, blessed is the one who opens this book, reads it, meditates, and then Psalm 2 tells us, and he runs to the sun for refuge. And we're supposed to remember how that opened when we get here. Blessing comes from reading the word, running to the sun, and then demonstrating to others the grace that we've received in him. And so really what book one of the Psalms is showing us is this sort of fully formed picture of the blessed life. What do you think the blessed life looks like? Like, Does it look like everything going smoothly? Trouble-free? Well, think about Psalm 1 and 2 say, here's ble- the blessed life begins by going to the Word, running to the Son, and then at the end by demonstrating His grace to others. But think about what happens in between. Think about the Psalms. Every week, suffering, trouble, difficulty. See, the Psalms show us a much more nuanced picture of a blessed life. A blessed life has trouble and difficulty, but the trouble and difficulty push us to Jesus. We flee to him. The blessed life is life with Jesus. And if trouble and difficulty are necessary to get us to him, then trouble and difficulty become friends, not enemies. I want you to imagine that you and I are part of a game show. I'm the host. You're the contestant. And the premise of this game show is that we have to make a deal, right? But because it's a game show, there's a catch, right? There's always a catch in the game show. So we sit down there on the stage together, and we begin to talk, and I ask you about things you enjoy. And as we talk, uh, the picture forms of an ideal life, right? You, you, you want to live in a certain part of the country. Well, we're already all living there, right, in God's country here. You want to be surrounded by friends and family, good health, good food, enough money to enjoy nice things, some time spent traveling, some fun experiences. As this picture begins to sort of wrap up and and we get a a complete picture of sort of what would be ideal, what you would enjoy, I, I offer to make you a deal. And here's the deal. I will give you all of the things you've listed. I'll give you home, health, relationships, money, on and on. But there's one catch. You can have it all, but you can't be satisfied. You can have it all, but you can't be content. You can have it all, but you'll always feel like something's missing. Would you take the deal? 
I think that's the life many of us want. We want a life without trouble. We want a life without hassle. We want a life without worry. We want things to be smooth and easy. And often we think that if we just had that, then we'd be satisfied. If we just had a little less trouble, things were a little easier, things weren't so hard, then we'd be content. If we just had all of these things, then we'd be complete. But here's what Psalm, book one of Psalms is trying to teach us. A satisfied life is not the life that avoids trouble. A contented life is not the life that avoids difficulty. A blessed life is not the life that never feels stress. The blessed life is a life with Jesus at the center. Like that's it. That's the life. We learn to run to Jesus. And as we run to him, we, we, we demonstrate grace to others. Right? Happy is the one who reads the word, runs to Jesus for refuge, and then out of that is gracious to others. See, if this is true, that this is what it really means to have a blessed life, it's not all of these other things, it's not ease, it's not prosperity, it's not comfort, it's none of these things. If this is true, then we should be grateful for anything that pushes us to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon famously said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Like we need suffering because we need to be thrown to Jesus. And suffering does it. So here's, here's my hope for you. I, I really hope that you won't grow disillusioned because of the suffering, because of the difficulty, because of the challenges and obstacles that you're facing right now. That you won't get on that escalator that leads to bitterness. How can it be like this? Why? What did I do to deserve this? This isn't fair. But instead that you'll see this, that the difficulty in your life is not a sign that God is against you that it's actually a picture of his uncomfortable grace, that he is drawing you to himself. He is bringing you to the place of blessing. That God is committed to your well-being even when you're most committed to your comfort. Will you pray with me? Father, I do pray right now that you'll help us not to grow disillusioned, not to be in despair because of the difficulty in our life. Lord, that's so easy for us. It's so easy to think things should be easier, they should be smoother, they shouldn't be so hard. It's easy to question and wonder, like, why is this happening? Why This seems so unfair. And to, to begin on that path to bitterness... Help us to see all of the difficulty, all of the trouble, all of the trials as your kindness to us to draw us to Jesus, the one place where we can truly find comfort and satisfaction and meaning and purpose. And so God, in your grace, help us. Help us to see suffering for what it is, that it is, though it's hard, 
you do good things through it. Help us to trust you, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquaverina, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.